Welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. We're creating a space to speak truth and examine context in diversity, equity, and inclusion. That means creating a path forward for everyone to recognize the benefits of inclusion individually and collectively. I'm your host, Omri B. Johnson. I'm a Topeka, Kansas, USA-born, Switzerland-based epidemiologist playing the role of an inclusion, diversity, and equity practitioner for the past 20 years. I'm the author of Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable, and the CEO of the DEI-centered management consultancy, Inclusion Wins, creating culture from the hearts of individuals. Let's jump in. Hi folks, Omri here. I hope you're well. Welcome to episode three of the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. If you have yet to subscribe, please do so now. Or after you listen to this episode, I just don't want you to forget. So feel free to pause for a second to click subscribe. Also, if you've yet to buy my book of the same name of this podcast, Reconstructing Inclusion, I hope you have the opportunity to do so soon. If you have purchased it and have even read a little bit, we welcome reviews on Amazon or on whatever platform you buy books. Now, let's get started. The DEI space is suffering from its own form of fragility. While I would wish that form to be anti-fragility, which author Nassim Talib defines as a system that can take on stressors and emerge stronger, that has not been the case. My observation is that rather than creating anti-fragility conditions, DEI is becoming brittle and entrenched. We are moving into fixed positions to protect ourselves from them, they, in this case, anyone who criticizes the work. My observations are not absolute. I have observed some people engaging in DEI and anti-racism work in a way that pulls everyone into the center to have what are difficult but self-reflective moments and ultimately transformational dialogues, exchanges that move individuals and organizations into making systemic changes that shift from a them versus us to a we or towards Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail quote that many of you have heard in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All of us are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. This is Ubuntu. It was part of the inspiration for reconstructing inclusion and the interdependence necessary in creating an inclusion system. It is as African philosopher John Samuel Mbiti, who is known as the father of modern African theology said, I am because we are, and since we are, therefore I am. This is Ubuntu. Some of these folks doing anti-racism work in a manner that I believe moves people to deeply reflect and recognize where racialization 
has historically and can implicitly and explicitly filter our humanity include Chloe Valdery and her theory of enchantment, Shaquille Chowdhury, author of Deep Diversity and founder of Anima Leadership. There are others. What I think sets them apart is that they are clear that us versus them ways of doing racial equity work are ineffective. At some point, the fatigue sets in. Their work, in my observation, centers on dialogic education and love, science, and humanity. And in Chloe's case, a bit of hip hop. It is not a blame placing, make wrong space they have constructed. It is done with a generative spirit. They deconstruct and reconstruct with people, the willing and the hesitant, bringing all into the center to create what is possible for the work. Others are going about racial equity education and DEI work with this spirit. I can think of Loretta Ross as she talks about calling in. And while I don't think call-outs are altogether bad or good, the levels of discernment and skill needed to call the unconverted folks out with the care it takes for an exchange to be meaningful beyond terse energy and often complete, unnuanced accusations with little consideration of context beyond one's own doesn't advance anything of significance. Let's say that in general, more animus or hostility than anima or soul is created when people driving anti-racism and DEI agendas are not skilled that haven't done their own inner work of centering what is transformative in themselves. This, I believe, is the antidote for egoistic approaches to anti-racism and DEI work. DEI work in practice is all about me while simultaneously not being about me and my personhood. Gestalt therapy, which is reflective of gestalt as used in organizational development, would say that self is a verb. It is the experience of contact between the ecosystem, which one could say organizations are, and its environment in the immediate passing present. It is the awareness of me, meeting not me, in all of the complex possibilities. So while I'm all about speaking truth to power, the truth cannot be my small t truth without consideration of the greater large t truths and the context in which we find ourselves in relationships with others. Inclusion is a relational construct. And if speaking truth to power, while naturally tense, results in an irreparable breakdown in relatedness. Our efforts will not be fruitful and our visions for racial equity for those who have set that as a goal will be frustratingly slow. Organizational key influencers rarely make something that they cannot relate to an unambiguous priority. What instead happens is that it becomes, quote, nice to have, close quote. Then, Resources are reduced, and the hopes for prioritization, if we can call it that, rest in a pressurized internal or external need to react to a situation or current event, like it's happened in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. <laughs> when I say the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, it begins to sound like a motion picture rather than something that really happened. 
it feels like some organizations are now treating it like it was a motion picture to be placed in that box and left there. Hey, the movie Crash starring the Wandy Newton, Don Cheadle, and Sandra Bullock. And the cycle continues. When I started brainstorming about this podcast, I originally thought I might write a script about a few of the silly things that had been happening in the U.S. related to the notion of woke or wokeness. After thinking about reacting to the Wall Street Journal article suggesting that wokeness and increasing the representation on the Silicon Valley Bank board and DEI efforts in general were variables in its collapse, I stopped. Now, and before that, I read about the vapid, politically motivated laws and policies being proposed, pushed, and proselytized from the pulpits of select, at least former Trump following Republican governors and state congressmen. I decided that there have been plenty of reactions and diatribes talking about that foolishness. There is no need to respond further to simpletons. I know they are powerful, but I don't want to give them more energy. There's no need to respond further to simpletons, restricting books, banning curricula, and trying to erase history that all should learn robustly. They aren't listening to what has been said, not beyond using the number of reactions as a metric to chart their reach. Only those of us DEI choir members are listening for the most part. I generally believe that the reactions to date have been more than sufficient, and I also think that the reactions are precisely what these political pimps desired from their smelly mouth boots. The DEI class of humans, of which I'm a part, served up the kinetic energy they sought. I will give no more. However, there are a few writers who have offered a nuanced view of wokeness. I will share about at least one without going into the depths of Ronald, First Amendment, Two-Face, in reference to the Batman villain, D, Insanity, and not the fitness crazy type. I'd like to examine where DEI and anti-racism practitioners and the approaches their institutions and organizations have taken have been what I call cause in the matter, which has in part led to the backlash against DEI. My intention here is to nudge us into a more nuanced dialogue, a more robust picture of the possibility that social and racial justice can be and contribute to the thinking that organizations can take to position the work for sustainability versus, say, my colleague Finnis Henderson has coined to connote taking steps backward in one's DEI journey or thinking. So what happens when someone challenges the current, or shall I say, predominant narrative, the historical preferences, traditions, and conveniences of the DEI field? What I have seen too often, and more so lately, as companies are pulling back on some of the anti-racism and DEI commitments made, is a pretty vehement condemnation of their rationale, which can only be surmised because they don't openly say why, and their intentions moving forward, that few articulate as they know anything done will be critically assessed by the outside world with no space for dialogue. Now, companies can do better, and 
As people passionate about practicing DEI, we can be a lot more deliberate in understanding this oft-recurring phenomenon. In the current case, what I've been exploring over the past three to six months provides insight into how and why some organizational leaders have changed their sentiments about DEI. Obviously, this is not a causal rationale. I'm sharing a few observations for your thought diet. Here is what I've been digging into. Last year, Percy Bacon at 538 cited a Huffington Post poll that said almost 50% of Americans had never heard of cancel culture. A more recent USA Today poll says that most Americans consider wokeness to be an awareness of injustices, not a reason to police others' words. If you were on Twitter or YouTube, you would believe that there are a considerable number of people acting in bad faith as promoters of anti-racism and DEI or on the left of the political spectrum being too woke, that is, pushing back on any ideologies contrary to their beliefs. I think less anonymity and people's aspirations for civility on LinkedIn result in less vitriol on LinkedIn, but it is there too. However, many influencers on LinkedIn publish memes, infographics, and posts that are just bad. They are thoughtful or helpful towards what I think are good faith aspirations towards social justice outcomes. I don't know people's intentions. I do know people post what they think will get attention and likes or that which resonates with and reinforces their brands. In this case, such posts are quote unquote succeeding, but for the greater good, I don't think so. I saw one about a month ago that talked about a racism scale and it asked, where do you fall? <laughs> I don't want to get into all the reasons that it was bad. It was done without depth. Too many posts are like that to each their own. People are free to post what they feel compelled to. My main pushback is that I don't think these posts are intended to create anything meaningful. Dr. Simon Western shared a brilliant article in his substack where he talked about what is awake woke versus fake woke. He gives some history and commentary. He talks about the authoritarian tendencies we are seeing from some politicians, pundits, and puties, using the phrase in a derogatory way to advance personal agendas and those who have used it for attention versus its true intent. He says of awake woke, Rona Shannon summarizes, the term woke came from the United States Black community. Its meaning was to be awake to issues of social injustice and particularly to racism. He also quotes Congressman Barbara Lee, but we will only succeed if we reject the growing pressure to retreat into cynicism and hopelessness. We have a moral obligation to stay woke, take a stand and be active, challenging injustices and racism in our communities and fighting hatred and discrimination wherever it rises. Close quote from Congresswoman Lee. Origins in 1962, as Western quotes, the New York Times published an article of phrases and words you might hear today in Harlem, a neighborhood 
in the northern section of New York City where a lot of Black people live, if you're not familiar. African-American novelist William Melvin Kelly wrote the earliest known use of the word under its new definition in an article titled, If You're Woke, You Dig It. Ten years later, in 1972, a character in the Barry Beckham play Garvey Lives says he'll stay woke via the work of Pan-Africanist Marcus Garvey with the line, I've been sleeping all my life, and now that Mr. Garvey done woke me up, I'm going to stay woke, and I'm going to help him wake up other Black folk. Just a side note, that last reference from Dr. Western's piece resonated with me as my maternal lineage were Garveyites, and reading Garvey today moves me to attention and reinforces my belief in agency as opposed to narratives of despair or victimization. Continuing with Dr. Western's article. The terms break into mainstream language came from the Black Lives Matter movement, which used the hashtag stay woke in the wake of racial injustices spreading across the U.S. Woke ideology literally means an ideology that demands we wake up to injustice. He goes now into fake woke. He says, we are not awake woke if we attach ourselves to tribal politics of the culture war. The line between awake woke and fake woke can be blurred. Consciously woke warriors really believe in social justice, but unconsciously they are getting off by alienating and attacking their bad other enemies. In Lacanian psychoanalysis, this unconscious enjoyment, this getting off, relates to how we attain intellectual pleasure and delight. The woke comedy show hosts on US TV thrive being fake woke. They show their fishbowl liberal audiences how clever they are, and their audience feel clever too, laughing at how stupid the bad other is. The elite audience and their fake woke tribe of liberals delight in making fun of the lower caste deplorable other. Continuing with Dr. Western, a good way to spot fake woke is to notice when an excess enjoyment takes place. Sharing jokes and irony and feeling warmth and solidarity with others is important, but this is a warning when surplus enjoyment is present. Excess pleasure is like a manic reaction that is a signal that we are no longer being awake woke. When this occurs, we have drifted into enjoying tribal politics too much, and this just feeds the beast. The populist right then has some justification in crying out, quote unquote, virtue signaling. The populist right then has some justification in crying out virtue signaling. Now, after hearing from Dr. Wester, it's evident that conversely, some people have taken a rhetorical stance against anything directly related to or adjacent to social justice, including anti-racism, critical race theory, intersectionality, and DEI. And there are even some people in or adjacent to the social and racial justice space who have taken the position that corporate DEI is a ruse. It's a game that leads to nothing but platitudes and pushing problems down the road but no real change. Nicole Hannah-Jones, known for the 1619 Project 
and an influential voice in the space of social justice with her reframing of the American narrative, said in an interview with Democracy Now! in 2021 that, but what I'll say is one thing that I do have in common with conservatives on this is I do think that DEI is generally not great, not for the reasons they say. I just think it tends to be extremely superficial, that we don't actually see much transformation, that all these corporations that last year with Black Lives Matter, all these institutions, including Congress, who were saying that this was going to be a transformative moment, they did a lot of performance. DEI trainings and turning your square on Instagram black, that's performance. If we look a year out, more than a year out, what types of structural change did we see at any of these institutions? And the answer is almost none. So I tend to not really be that interested in those trainings. I don't think they are harmful like the right would have you think. And I don't think they are harming individuals or making individuals feel that they don't have a right to free speech. But I do think in general that they are ineffective and many organizations use them as a shield against having to do the actual work. Close quote. Jones did not say what actual work is. The work she's doing has been praised by many. Her curriculum is being taught in many school systems, and she has a Netflix special about the project. She's also been criticized by many, including a plethora of historians of note. They have pushed back against the narrative of the 1619 Project, stating that some of its content was historically inaccurate and or held incomplete inferences. The New York Times eventually responded to the critics and did an update of the document. My personal belief is that the 1619 Project's framing is inconsistent with how I learned history, including about slavery before, during, and after my time at Morehouse College, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. attended, and beyond that through my own reading. Yes, slavery was perhaps the most dehumanizing set of events, actions, and behaviors ever perpetuated in history, and remnants of that history are still subtly in action present day. And I'm not confident that the reframing of America that Jones and colleagues purport is a balanced narrative. I don't believe it is one that speaks of the atrocities of slavery and the greatness that has emerged from the struggle inherent in the American experiment. I have many criticisms of my country of birth, and I cannot deny the privileges that being American have provided for me. Life in the work of DEI is always a both and, not and either or. My point about sharing Jones is to highlight my sentiment that too much of the framing of the DEI and anti-racism work that has gained traction over the past, I'd say, five, more so the past two and a half years post-George Floyd, has reduced everything related to Black lives as tragedy and what I sense as making it seem to connote that one monolithic idea of a group runs our entire society, including organizations. That monolithic group is inherently racist and dehumanizing in a way that has never had any semblance of redemption. To me, that is falling in to the trap of cynicism and hopelessness, as I quoted earlier from Congresswoman Lee. We need more space for dissenting voices. They are accessible to us, but as organizations, 
are we intentionally and amply bringing them into the conversation and the work we are doing in this space? I'd say no, or at best, not enough. DEI practitioners and the passionate must be beacons for dissent. But are we consistently or intentionally of this mindset? Let me share a few examples. First, let me reiterate my question from earlier in this recording. What happens when someone challenges the current or shall I say predominant narrative the historical preferences, traditions, and conveniences of the DEI field? What I've seen is mostly defensiveness and monthly statements of condemnation. This response is contrary to progress. Inclusion is the willingness to be influenced by the so-called other. If we cannot practice this as those who have chosen this work as a profession, how can we expect any shift from those dramatically less familiar? Returning to the 538 article mentioned above, Percy Bacon, in March 2021, he says, polls suggest that many voters currently don't know what cancel culture is, and that's true even among Republicans, despite the party's elite talking about cancel culture nonstop. But fighting the woke and cancel culture could become more familiar and important to voters outside of the GOP particularly if some Democrats are raising the same concerns. And that's already happening to some extent. There's a real divide among Democratic elites with more centrist Democrats arguing that some ideas of behavior on gender identity and race in particular coming from the party's left are going too far. Again, this is nothing new. Some centrist Democrats joined conservatives in previous eras who were worried about the civil rights movement, busing, and identity politics. But this ideological split in the Democratic Party at the elite level could eventually trickle down to voters. Think about the Reagan Democrats who started voting for GOP presidential candidates in the 1980s because they perceived that the Democratic Party of that era was too tied to Black causes or the bloc of Republicans who voted for Hillary Clinton and or President Biden because they were wary of how Trump talked about racial issues, a perception that the Democratic Party is too woke that is amplified by prominent Republicans and some prominent Democrats could provide a rationale and a permission structure for those Democrats to block, to back rather GOP candidates, particularly Republicans who don't say racist things like Trump did. Mr. Bacon wrote this again in 2021. I have said, and I will say again, that partisan politics have no space in my worldview. I vote my conscience and values, and I don't have a political party. What I don't believe is that just because someone believes something or has experienced something, that they are de facto right. Lived experience, also known as embodied experience, can be true and incomplete. As practitioners, we must acknowledge this. What I don't believe is that just because someone believes something or has experienced something that they are automatically right. Lived experience, also known as embodied experience, can be true and incomplete. As practitioners, we must acknowledge this, but many times we don't. Many times we make the lived experience a badge of credibility that says we are right, full stop. First, Rightness and our adherence to it have never transformed anything. Second, context drives content. Lived experience alone does not equate to proficiency or skill in DEI or anything for that matter. 
Imagine if everyone ex with the experience of a disease or other medical disorder would qualify as a specialist in that area. It sounds a bit ridiculous, huh? Of course, but it's been the refrain of many people entering the DEI field for the past two to three years. Lived experience can be weaponized. It is not always used in good faith. Can we recognize this? And can we see how it can fuel what we are seeing as resistance to DEI efforts? The idea of the Mott and Bailey fallacy, which some of you might be familiar with, gives us insight into how a lack of good faith within our approaches can hinder long-term sustainable advancement of DEI. The Mott and Bailey fallacy is when a modest and easy to defend position, the Mott, is replaced by a much more controversial position, the Bailey. A person will argue the Bailey, but then replace it with the Mott when questioned. Alexander Bell says in an April 2021 article that, and he gives an example, for example, a key concept of critical race theory in the broader social justice movement is the notion of lived experience, which means that marginalized people have better access to knowledge about their own experiences of oppression than the privileged do. On the surface, that seems quite reasonable. A white person could never know how it feels to be called the N-word, and a man might be oblivious to how it feels to be a woman in a male-dominated profession. Sexism and racism do exist. So it seems reasonable to assume that members of the majority are less likely to recognize such prejudices. However, the proponents of critical race theory and intersectionality, says Bell, do not stop there. Smuggled into their notion of lived experience is an adherence to the more controversial standpoint epistemology, a postmodern theory of knowledge that rejects reaching for objectivity and argues that marginalized people have authoritative knowledge about complex systems of oppression in society itself. He gives an example of a colleague of his at a, Swiss, at a Swedish university that cited his lived experience when he argued the critics of Sweden's immigration policies. He said they were all racist and should all be banned from speaking at universities. When I told him that his lived experience was just anecdote, Bell said, there's no way that he could generalize about millions of people based on a few bad encounters. He doubled down and replied, that's a very white male thing to say. Initially, I worried that I wasn't sympathetic enough to his experiences as an immigrant, Bell says, despite being one himself. However, I now realize that I was being emotionally manipulated and shamed into silence through a very clever bait and switch. These tactics are not part of a good faith debate, but rather a rhetorical strategy to claim epistemic authority and gain power. Retreating to the mock of lived experiences is a manipulative tactic that the disciples of the social justice movement use to exploit compassionate people's desires not to offend others. The Mott and Bailey allow pseudo-academics and activists to shut down important discussion without making an argument or citing any credible scholarship or data. It also allows them to drown out well-reasoned arguments with selective antidotes, emotional appeals, shaming tactics, and religious zealotry. Let me say, again, this article was published in 2021. Marginalization does not mean those who suffer will know the best policy to fix a social problem. Given that I'm Black, I could qualify as someone who could be called marginalized or racialized. I could have a greater understanding 
how it feels to be marginalized. But this does not automatically give me the ability to solve complex social systems and other external causal factors. It does not mean that I will absolutely know the best policy to fix the multifactorial social and organizational issues of our time. One more example before I move towards closing. Jake Klein on the FAIR Substack. If you're not familiar with FAIR, you should definitely follow them on Substack. Jake Klein on the FAIR Substack on March 14, 2023 speaks of, if I may, fake woke using Dr. Wester's definition of the phenom Dr. Robin D'Angelo. The article is called Robin D'Angelo and the Next Frontier of DEI. That ideologues like D'Angelo have had an imperfect relationship with corporations is not entirely surprising. Many DEI advocates have long complained that corporations mostly adopt DEI practices for appearances sake. But nonetheless, it's worthy that some companies are backing away from DEIJ programs once they learn what they truly do. Obscuring the true nature of these programs by using broadly agreeable words such as inclusion, justice, and anti-racism is a strategy, as we just heard, called Martin Bailey, and it's been essential to DEI. Unfortunately, the bad news is that despite these things failing, D'Angelo and others are moving along undeterred. Here's what D'Angelo said and that Klein quoted. He says, if D'Angelo says, if employers fail to find candidates who are sympathetic to her views on racial justice, then recruiters should consider it a failed search and try again. He directly quotes D'Angelo here. What I want to do is create a culture that actually spits out those who are resistant. D'Angelo invoked Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point theory, noting that you don't need everyone. You don't need even 50% tipping points. They happen at 30% roughly. Once a company goes past the tipping point, the 30% can set out to rid the undesirable influences. She is pretty accurate about tipping points, but her philosophy is absolutely not helpful. Now, the last thing I'll say about D'Angelo as Klein shares. Perhaps D'Angelo's most troubling suggestion was that, and this is a quote from D'Angelo, people of color need to get away from white people. Close quote. One concrete manifestation of this reasoning that was mentioned favorably by all the panelists in this webinar that he is referencing is that of ERGs. Talking about ERGs can be geared towards advancing D'Angelo's work. My stance on ERGs, affinity groups that are a single identity, has been made public in my book and other things I've written. So I disagree with D'Angelo and others who are pushing an ideology that erects a permanent detour for anyone who challenges their ways of thinking. This is dangerous, and if we stand back, we will see how matter-of-fact conclusions about solutions to complex social and organizational issues are short-sighted and ultimately result in blocking extraordinary aspirations and noble intentions via a rigid agenda. I've been worried about this for a while and my concern grows. And I feel like intersectionality, one of the things being attacked by bad faith actors of DEI, is if used in what I consider an evolved and accessible manner, gives us the space to dig through complexity. I'll close with this passage, some short commentary from Reconstructing Inclusion, making DEI accessible, actionable, and sustainable. 
Intersectionality offers a conceptual space to explore the burgeoning multidimensionality in organizational life. It can expand the space to explore complexity, but that is not what it has consistently done. Crenshaw is interested in making room for more advocacy in what she calls remedial practices. I would refer to it as designing organizations for systemic equity. We need a pure dose of intersectionality. That means we need to extract its essence. How do we best serve it through our conceptions, actions? How does it best serve us as a tool to refine our lenses and expand our apertures? Context drives content. If the context remains limited, we will lose intersectionality and all its power to the ugly. I would argue that it has already happened to some extent, and there will be some YouTube stars, bloggers, and politically oriented public intellectuals from across the political spectrum, and politicians who, out of convenience and in deference to their brands, hold on to their points of view without consideration of the various contexts that are always at play. Their perspectives should be both welcomed and criticized, not with the fire of annihilation, but with the light of humility. A light appropriately intensified, but always with the intention of enlightening us as practitioners to be vigilant perspective takers, diligent with our inquiry, thoughtful with our actions, and mindful that there is always more there than we can quickly or independently understand. Years ago, while building employee resource groups across the globe with clients and then with my former employer, I had a theoretical position that I saw as reflective of intersectionality and multidimensionality. I didn't believe in single identity ERGs. That is, I felt that if any ERG was to get financial support, it had to be inclusive of people. It had to be inclusive of people who may not be historically considered from a particular identity group. For example, a women's ERG needed to intentionally have men as part of it. And I saw and see ERGs as spaces to lay the groundwork for greater solidarity across identities. I wrote a blog about it in 2009 that didn't have the most favorable response from all practitioners as they were intent on saying that these groups created safe spaces for the members. I didn't disagree. The spaces were safe and needed to be but I felt that the spaces needed to be and could be safe, even for people from groups who didn't match the identity of the majority. For example, men having a safe place in a woman's ERG. My sense remains that if an organization is aspiring to be inclusive as a default or normative way of being, ERGs could be bridges between values and backgrounds as inclusion systems are developed with the intention of elevating the superset of humanity in its entirety. Intersectionality, when framed as a container to look at organizational life with a multidimensional lens, is characterized by two fundamental elements of an inclusion system, interdependence and mindful reflection. Interdependence, in this sense, goes beyond interpersonal inclusion. It also includes systems interacting with each other, it speaks to the reality that everyone and everything in our organizations rely on one another in explicit and implicit ways. All contributions and contexts of each contributor are vital to overall organizational function. Intersectionality allows us to see these multiple dimensions as more than the sum of their parts, each connecting with each other like particles combining to create molecules. 
mindful reflection as it relates to intersectionality means that the perspective of these differences and similarities are required if we want to create inclusion as aligned with purpose, and that is therefore sustainable. Our values are on a continuum, often much closer to one another than we realize. A more complete construction of intersectionality holds space for us to acquire with depth. With this depth is a wellspring of potential to inspire the extraordinary, consistently considering the whole rather than narrowly anchoring on our myriad indivisible parts. Thanks for listening. If you have yet to purchase Reconstructing Inclusion, what are you waiting for? And of course, subscribe to this podcast. We're just getting started and appreciate your feedback and sharing with your networks. I hope this was helpful. Make it a great day. Peace. If you are committed or simply a little bit curious about how to make DEI accessible to everyone, actionable, that is unambiguously prioritized and sustainable, aligned with personal and organizational purpose, hit the subscribe button. Make it a great day. Peace.